Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family, Talk About Infertility. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am your host and the director of Creating a Family. And we are this podcast, but we are also a website full of information to help you in this infertility journey, struggle, whatever word you want to use for it. And that website is creatingafamily.org. So today we're going to be talking about genetics and fertility. Infertility is a disease affecting nearly 7% of all couples. It is a highly heterogeneous pathology. That's the fancy way of saying it's complex. And uh, it includes both environmental and genetic factors. We're going to be focusing today on the genetic factors. We're going to be talking today with two experts, two genetic counselors. One, Sharon Lincoln. She is a certified genetic counselor at Cooper Genomics, specializing in PGTM. Prior to joining Cooper Genomics, Sharon worked at the Boston Children's Hospital with specialties in pediatric genetics, fragile X syndrome, and genomic medicine. We will also be talking with Sheila Johal, who has been with Cooper Genomics for five years. She provides genetic counseling to patients seeking pre-implantation genetic testing and is now the manager of the PGTM genetic counseling team. She came to Cooper Genomics after more than nine years at Metro Health Medical Center in Cleveland, Ohio, where she provided prenatal, general, and cardiovascular genetic counseling services. Welcome, Sharon and Sheila, to Creating a Family. We're so glad to have you here to talk about this complex and really fascinating topic. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. All right. So let's start by kind of getting ourselves grounded and and how common this is. So what percentage of infertility can be attributed to our genes? Sheila? So right now, research suggests that about half of all infertility cases are related to genetic issues, but that's not to say that there's one single gene that causes 50% of these issues. Um, There are many topics, which I know we will cover today, that have a genetic component, but also have an environmental component, and there may be many genes at play, but some of the things that we'll be looking at are chromosome abnormalities, we'll be looking at inherited conditions that can impact fertility, and then conditions like endometriosis, where genes absolutely play a role, but environmental things play a role as well. Thank you. So now we're going to divide the interview into two sections. One, how genetics affects female infertility, and then how genetics affects male infertility. All right, Sharon, let's begin with trisomy X, our 47XXX. Uh, what is it, first of all, and then and how does it affect infertility? Sure. So quick crash course with chromosomes. Um, <laughs> Thank you. So we, we need have, that. <laughs> yeah. So we have 23 pairs of chromosomes for a total of 46. Um, The first 22 pairs are numbered 1 through 22. They're the same between men and women. That last pair of chromosomes are called our sex chromosomes. Females typically have two X chromosomes. Males typically have an X and a Y. So trisomy X, which is also called triple X, is when a female has three copies of the X chromosome instead of two. And so that's why you'll see 47 XXX, 47 total chromosomes, extra X chromosome. Triple X is actually pretty common. It happens in about one in a thousand women. 
There are undoubtedly women out there who don't even know that they have it because the symptoms can be pretty mild. So you could have an extra X chromosome and not know it. That's interesting. Yes. So, so what are the symptoms? So historically, people would say, oh, you know, there really isn't anything. But as we've looked into this more and more, there can be learning disabilities, language delay, and some social and behavioral issues. Um, Not ones that are on the autism spectrum, but things like attention and executive functioning issues. Women with triple X tend to have tall stature as well. So they may be tall for their age. Interesting. All right. So how common is infertility? If a woman has three X chromosomes, is she automatically infertile? Is it more likely? And if it's more likely, how common, how more likely? So she is not automatically going to be infertile. It's it's actually unclear how common infertility actually is in women with trisomy X or triple X. There's evidence that shows that women with triple X have lower AMH levels. That's one of the hormones that's looked at in fertility workups. But it's really not clear whether this correlates with an increased risk for primary ovarian insufficiency, one of the causes for fertility. Um, Further research is definitely needed. So, you know, kind of long answer short is that, yes, there probably is an increased risk for infertility, but what that risk is, we don't actually know. Okay. So, but, but that is something that is commonly done in a genetic workup for somebody who is seeking infertility treatment. That a chromosome analysis should be done for um, somebody who is seeking infertility treatment to look for not only triple X, but some of the other sex chromosome abnormalities that we'll be talking about. Okay. So one of the things that infertility patients have to wonder is if I have a chromosomal abnormality, such as trisomy X or triple X, the, is this going to be passed to my children? And if so, then I need to think through whether or not this is something I want to do. So what is the likely, yeah, I mean, it's a real conundrum. So what is the uh, what is the likelihood that uh, a woman would pass trisomy X down to their child, female child, obviously? So there actually doesn't appear to be an increased risk of having a child with a chromosome abnormality if you have triple X. Ah, okay. Well, that is like really good news for anyone who has that. Okay. All right. So Sharon, we've talked about having an extra X chromosome. What is it possible to have uh, less, most women, uh, genetic women, genetically women have XX as a chromosome so on their last of the DNA strand. But is it possible to have a single X? Yes, it is. A single X or monosomy X is also called Turner syndrome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I've heard of Turner syndrome. So what? Is, what are, how common is it and what are the symptoms? Let's talk about that. So Turner syndrome happens in about one in 2,000 to one in 4,000 women. You know, that sounds like a really broad range, but part of that is there may be girls and women out there who haven't been diagnosed. And so the studies themselves vary in terms of how common it is versus not. 
Yeah, it's an interesting thing with genetics, isn't it? Because we we don't automatically test our genetics, do our genetic testing, unless we usually have a have an issue, have a problem. In this case, uh, women seeking or men uh, seeking fertility treatment. So it's it's like our population that we test is skewed towards those who have issues. It would seem to me, is that exactly. true? Exactly. Yeah, that is absolutely true. Yes. So it makes it hard when people like me ask how common it is because the truth is we don't know. Yeah, go ahead. And not only that, it makes it hard to when you look at historical literature or historical information about certain conditions because historically we were looking at the most severely affected. We weren't looking at the milder end of the spectrum. And now with genetic testing becoming more frequent and more common, we have much more of that spectrum. Oh, that's fascinating. That makes so much sense. Yeah, because in the past, it would only be the more severe that would bring somebody into the, well, and let's be honest, the the ability to do genetic testing is a relatively, we we take it for granted now, but it's relatively new in the, in the scheme of medicine. (laughs) So, yes. So, yes, definitely. What are the symptoms of Turner syndrome or monosomy X? Yeah. So Turner syndrome can be, um, can have some signs and symptoms prenatally. So on prenatal ultrasounds, you may see an increased nuchal translucency and, and that's the kind of space between, uh, space at the back of the neck that is sometimes measured in early ultrasounds that can be increased in girls with Turner syndrome. You can also see what we call lymphedema, which is fluid build up in other parts of the body. Um, And that can be seen both prenatally and after birth, particularly in the hands and feet. So girls with Turner syndrome may have puffy looking hands or feet because of this lymphedema. Interesting. And the thing about the, the, the extra space in the neck, Mm -hmm. how is that seen after, uh, is it noticeable after birth? That's a great question. So it actually isn't necessarily noticeable after birth. Um, Women with Turner syndrome can have a webbed neck, meaning that there's kind of more skin connecting the neck to the shoulder area. That may be a result of this kind of lymphedema in that neck area, but that's not a definite correlation. So just because there's an increased nuchal translucency on ultrasound doesn't mean that you're going to see anything after birth. Interesting. So the, you've talked about some of the things that, that are present in ultrasound, so pre-birth. What about children and babies' children and then adults who have Turner syndrome? Are there symptoms to be looking for there? Yes. So a decent number of girls with Turner syndrome have congenital heart defects. And so that's something that can be, again, detected prenatally, but may not be something that's noted until after birth. They can also, common features include short stature, so poor growth. They can have chronic ear infections, which can cause hearing loss, congenital kidney abnormalities. There are autoimmune disorders, particularly with hypothyroidism and celiac disease as well. Girls with Turner syndrome do not have intellectual disability. This was something that was 
um, again, historically thought that they might, but they do not have intellectual disability, but they do have a very specific learning profile that can cause pretty significant learning disabilities, particularly with nonverbal communication and spatial relationships. So girls often need support in school. I think you're meaning that, wouldn't you say that that would be a learning difference? I mean, they have a learning profile. It's not that their intelligence is less. It's that they learn in a different way, I'm trying to say. Yes. Um, Yeah. Okay. Or they have have weaknesses in certain areas that, that need to be addressed in learning. Correct. Okay. And then the big issue, especially related to the talk today, is they can have delayed puberty and fertility issues. And the fertility issues are extremely common. Okay. And is it that they have primary ovarian insufficiency so that they may be uh, subfertile early but able to get pregnant, but then if if they wait, their fertility will decline rapidly, or is it that they do not have healthy ovaries, or what? What uh, is there a particular aspect of infertility that they're more likely to to suffer from? Yeah, so it's more it, the subfertility is is not really there. It's more that the ovaries could be absent, or there's there's such significant ovarian insufficiency that it just occurs very, very early on. And so spontaneous pregnancy in women with Turner syndrome is is actually pretty unusual. It's rare. It occurs in about five to eight percent of women with Turner syndrome. But there can also be some other issues, particularly with hormone balances, because the ovaries really aren't working. And also there can sometimes be some uterine abnormalities. And so even in women who do get pregnant, there's a high frequency of miscarriage. Because of the uterus is also not uh, functioning in in the correct way. Correct. Is some of the, I I have uh, heard that mosaicism is more common with Turner syndrome. Can, first of all, is that true? And then can you explain what mosaicism is? Yes. So mosaicism is quite common in Turner syndrome. Mosaicism is where we're seeing some cells in the body have a normal number of chromosomes and some cells in the body have this monosomy X or, or have the chromosome complement we'd see with Turner syndrome. Most often, we're seeing a mix of normal female chromosomes and the Turner syndrome uh, karyotype or that 45X. But you can also get women who have Turner syndrome who are mosaic for 45X, that monosomy, and 46XY. Um, So when we have a mosaic Turner syndrome or Turner syndrome really in general, it's actually really important to test for the Y chromosome material because women who have or girls who have Turner syndrome and have this Y chromosome material are at risk for a specific type of tumor called gonadoblastoma. And so if they have this Y material, the management of those girls is going to be different. Mm-hmm. Does the having the presence of the Y in a mos- in a person who has mosaicism is that also impacting the success of fertility treatment? It may. Um, it's it hasn't really, at least that I have been able to find, it hasn't really been broken down 
as much into, you know, what is the difference between women who have kind of full Turner syndrome, those who are mosaic with normal 46XX versus those who are mosaic with 46XY versus mosaic for some other chromosome abnormality. Yes. And it could be others as well. You've just mentioned those. It would seem to me that, again, if women were able to get pregnant, a question they would uh, need to ask is, what's the heritability of this uh, chromosomal abnormality? And we don't really know. And part of that is because most women with Turner syndrome will need an egg donor in order to conceive. Okay. For those who are able to use their own eggs, either for spontaneous pregnancy or they have enough follicles um, to to use their own eggs in a fertility treatment, there is an increased risk for chromosome abnormalities overall, not just Turner syndrome. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Now moving on to single gene disorders. At the beginning, Sheila mentioned that one of the issues with infertility as it relates to genetics is that it is often not just one gene that is causing the problem, which complicates uh, the and, and, and increases the need for sophisticated genetic testing and it complicates the diagnosis. But there are some single gene disorders. Sheila, I'm eventually going to get to you, but I'm going to direct this question to Sharon as well. What are some of the single gene disorders where we've got a, uh, an issue with one gene that can imp- cause a disease or cause an abnormality that would impact fertility? So Fragile X is one of the most common single gene causes for primary ovarian insufficiency. Galactosemia is another, galactosemia itself isn't common, but it's another, I would say, known cause Um, for primary ovarian insufficiency. Other common genes may not actually cause additional symptoms other than the primary ovarian insufficiency or ovarian failure. And those genes can include ones called BMP15, NOBOX, NR5A1, and FIGLA. Those are kind of some of the other ones that that range anywhere from, you know, one to 10% of the genetic, the known single gene causes for primary ovarian insufficiency. Let's talk about fragile X. Is it more common? You've mentioned that the others, the others that you've mentioned are fairly uncommon, but what about fragile X? And, and what what is it first? And then how common is yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> um, so fragile X is a, from a genetic standpoint, it's, it's relatively complicated. It's what we call a triplet repeat disorder. And what that means is in the gene, there's this section of DNA that repeats itself over and over and over again. Most of us have between 10 and 45 of these repeats. Individuals who have fragile X have over 200 repeats. When that happens, the gene gets shut off. Um, It gets turned off, so it's not making any fragile X protein. And it results in primarily developmental and behavioral issues. So individuals with fragile X do have intellectual disability, most often in the moderate range. And that's further complicated by things like ADHD, autism spectrum disorders, sensory processing issues, and anxiety. And 
all of that can tie into behavioral issues as well. So it is tends to be a more developmental disorder. Physically, they, they tend to be fairly healthy most of the time. Mm-hmm. In between this normal and fragile X is what we call a premutation. And women or, and men who have a premutation have between 55 and 200 of these repeats. Women who have a premutation have about a 20% risk of having primary ovarian insufficiency. And that's where the fertility issues come in again. The, the, how common are the premutations? And, and would you, a person know that they, they're not full-blown fragile X, but they have premutations uh, for that, the repeat? Would a person be aware, would a woman be aware of that uh, other than uh, infertility? Are there symptoms? Um, not necessarily. Um, the other things that we can see with a premutation are things we see in the general population. So there's an increased risk for anxiety and depression, but those are also relatively common in the general population. The premutation in the United States in women is about one in 200 women, give or take a little bit. That differs from a little bit from country to country. So in places like Israel, the premutation frequency is about one in 100. And in other places, it might be a little bit less. Why would it differ? If I would assume that it, that uh, uh, less genetic pool to select from would, would be an influence for the increase, why would it be less some places? Same idea, actually, that the genetic pool, if, if it started and there weren't that many individuals with a premutation, then it's not going to be as prevalent. Mm-hmm. And if if you if it is common in a population to to move and and to be then selecting partners for from a more diverse gene pool, then that would probably exactly okay. exactly yep okay yep that makes sense all right excellent this show as well as all the resources we provide at creating a family is brought to you by our partners. These are organizations that believe in our mission of unbiased, medically accurate information to the patient community. One such partner is Cryos International Sperm and Egg Bank. They are dedicated to providing a wide selection of high-quality, extensive, screened, frozen donor sperm and eggs from all races, ethnicities, and phenotypes for both home insemination as well as fertility treatment. Cryos International is the world's largest sperm bank and the first freestanding independent egg bank in the United States, helping to provide the gift of a family. All right, now we're going to be talking, moving to polygenetic complex uh, female infertility. And Sheila, I've saved the best for you. Uh, I'm going to give you the more, I'm going to give you the hard stuff. So we've talked at the beginning, you talked about the strong possibility that, that that some genes that some infertility could be caused by an easy to identify uh, genetic connection but some is far more complex and it's a mix of things so that's what we're going to be talking about now when we say polygenetic what do we mean 
So polygenic is really just a fancy way of saying that there are both genetic factors that contribute to a certain disease presentation, as well as environmental factors um, that can contribute. And in a lot of cases, we don't have either of those headings very well described. Uh, we just know that it's, that it's both. And But we're not sure necessarily even which of the things would be, which of the environments, environmental factors or which of our genes is necessarily controlling. That's correct. So in a lot of cases, we don't know exactly. We don't know exactly what genes might be influencing or contributing to the problem. We don't, we don't know if it's one gene or many. The environmental factors, we, again, we may or may not know what some of them are. We likely don't know what all of them are. And we don't know in a lot of cases which one is more heavily weighted. Like is genetics more important for a certain condition or is environmental factors more important for a certain condition? Um, and so these, these polygenic findings are, are if for the most part, there really isn't a specific genetic test you can do to diagnose them. Hence, that the, one of the most important things to realize is that there's not a genetic test. You're not going to be able to go through genetic testing and kind of come out with a definitive answer. And that's something that's important for both medical professionals and for patients to realize. Um, but, okay, so if we don't know for sure how much genetics are contributing, how, why do we even think, and, and we're going to be talking, we're going to move into talking about uh, uh, th four uh, common diseases, endometriosis, fibroids, PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and primary ovarian insufficiency. Uh, but before we talk about that, if, if we don't know how much genes are impacting, what makes us think genetics is, is even potentially involved? That's a great question. Um, and the answer is that for these conditions that we're going to talk about in a minute, in almost all cases, we see that for many of the women affected by, say, endometriosis or by fibroids, that there are other women in their family who have the same finding. And in many cases, you see more affected women in a family than you would expect if this was happening by chance alone which mm -hmm. leads you to the conclusion that there must be some genetic factors that are playing a role. Okay, perfect. Well, let's dive in. Endometriosis, is there, is there a genetic link? Yes, there certainly does seem to be. Um, there have been um, several studies that have been completed for women who have been diagnosed with endometriosis. Um, and what they were really looking for is, is there aggregation of this condition in your female patient side of the family. And in several of the studies, what they've done is they've looked at the women in the family of the index patient. So the patient, the female patient who's presenting with a diagnosis of endometriosis, her female relatives have been evaluated. And when I say female relatives, I mean close relatives, sisters, mom, aunts. And what they found is that if you compare the um, frequency of endometriosis in female in the female relatives of a woman who has endometriosis to the frequency of endometriosis in a family that doesn't that that there isn't like a primary um, female index patient we see that the relatives of the female patient are more likely to be affected and in a lot of studies, what they did was they used the male partner as the control. So they looked at the women in the female patient's family, the women in the male partner's family, and, and said, like, do we see more endometriosis on the female side than the male side? And that answer is often yes. What has been done to try to find 
the genes, and I'm assuming that if they're, well, we don't even know, it could be one gene or it could be multiple genes, but what is being done to try to trace the gene or genes that would be causing endometriosis? So uh, in some of the older studies, scientists were using something called linkage analysis. And linkage analysis basically evaluates segments of DNA that family members have in common. Because family members don't share 100% of their DNA, they share a proportion. And how much DNA you share in common with a relative just depends on how closely related you are to that person. But what they did was they looked to see, okay, in our female patient who has endometriosis, in her sister who has endometriosis, in her mom, in their aunt, or whoever else in the family might have had that diagnosis, what what segments of DNA do they all share in common? And from that, there, there have been studies to say, like, are there genes in this area that have a role in things like uterine lining. And there have not been um, any single disease-causing genes identified to date. Um, So there still has not been one gene that has been described as with certainty causing endometriosis. There are several what we call candidate genes, which means genes that might be involved, but that has not been definitively shown. And as I mentioned a minute ago, so right now what that really means for patients is that There is not a genetic test that you can do that will diagnose endometriosis. There is only the histologic testing. So often that is some evaluation of the uterus and potentially a biopsy. Mm -hmm. And I know that that can be frustrating because I think in this day and age, everyone sort of expects there to be a genetic test for everything. But the reality is that we don't don't have that yet. Um, What we do know from these studies is that there's unlikely to be just one gene that causes endometriosis. It's almost certain that there are going to be multiple genes. Mm -hmm. And uh, just in closing, endometriosis does affect fertility and you can get more information on that. That is a, that is a course unto itself. (laughs) And you can get much more information on that at our website, creatingafamily.org. You will also get information there about the lifestyle and environmental factors that can influence endometriosis as well. All right, now let's talk about fibroids. Is there a genetic link to fibroids? I certainly know that there is a, uh, it does tend to be connected. If your mother has fibroids, you are far more likely to have fibroids. But uh, I guess that answers my question is if there's a, is there a genetic link? But Sheila, go ahead and talk to us about the genetic connection with fibroids. Yes, and you're 100% right. There, there absolutely is a genetic link. It's a little different than endometriosis in the sense that um, fibroids themselves are very common, even in the general population, and not all fibroids are created equal. Many women who have fibroids will have small fibroids that don't ever impact their fertility or their activities of daily life. And then there are some women who have fibroids that they have a lot of them, they get very large, um, sometimes they can be painful. And so they certainly can impact fertility as well as, again, activities of daily life. In general, yes, if you have a family history of fibroids, your risk as a female to have fibroids in your life is increased. It's not clear exactly what that specific increase is. The studies the studies are different. And again, because fibroids are so common, it can be really challenging to figure out that number. 
Um, environmental factors certainly do play a role. And like endometriosis, this is a condition that we don't have a predictive genetic test for. So same thing, you can't go and get a genetic test that will diagnose you with fibroids. You only really get that diagnosis by actually looking at the uterus and evaluating uh, usually by ultrasound for fibroids. Now I will add here that for fibroids in particular, there is at least one inherited what we call single gene condition that is known to be associated with fibroids. This is really not a very common disorder. Um, and so the vast majority of women who have fibroids are not going to have this, but this is a condition that has a long name. It's called hereditary leiomyomatosis and renal cell cancer. Uh, it's often abbreviated HLRCC. And this is caused by a gene called FH. And um, this is actually a hereditary cancer predisposition. Like the name implies, people who have this condition, male or female, have an increased risk to develop renal cell cancer in their lifetime. But women who have this also have a very high risk of developing multiple uterine fibroids and not a small number of families with this condition are identified after the identification of multiple generations of fibroids that are, again, impactful. Mm-hmm. And so, again, while it's certainly not the most common explanation, something to always keep in mind, and one of the reasons that a family history is so important, really for all patients, but particularly for patients who are seeking an evaluation for infertility. Okay. And again, you can get more information on fibroids, the environmental factors, and and impact on fertility at creatingafamily.org. Now, polycystic ovarian syndrome, or polycystic ovary syndrome, I've seen it both ways, PCOS. What is the genetic connection with uh, PCOS, Sheila? So again, this is this is very similar to the other two. It's going to start to sound like a pattern. Uh, in, ge- in, in general, it is a where, pattern. It's the polygenic pattern. Go ahead. It is. It, abs- it absolutely is. Now, I will actually take a step back and say that when someone has a diagnosis of PCOS, it is important to make sure other genetic conditions that can masquerade as PCOS are are being evaluated for. And the condition that comes to my mind is congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Um, That's a condition that has what we call a classic form and a non-classic form. And in the non-classic form, um, one of the main findings are problems with infertility. And in some women who have non-classic congenital adrenal hyperplasia, they can actually be diagnosed with PCOS when in fact there's something else going on. So it's really important to make sure that that has something that is being considered. But um, just for PCOS in general, same thing. There are, with virtual certainty, multiple genetic factors playing a role. Because again, if a woman has PCOS, she's more likely to have a family history of PCOS. But again, we have not yet identified a single genetic cause. And we certainly know um, that there are environmental factors that predispose to this um, Obesity is one that we know um, can sometimes increase the risk for PCOS. Um, And if you have PCOS, you also have an increased risk for other medical conditions such as diabetes. That's a common finding in someone who has PCOS. But again, not a genetic test that you can do that will diagnose this. This has to be diagnosed um, using other methods. 
Yeah, and this, this, of course, the one of the real struggles for people with PCOS, women with PCOS, is that it tends to lead towards weight gain, and weight gain is also exacerbates it. So it's a, a bit of a a closed loop there. Yep, it's a it's a cycle. It's a circle. Yeah, exactly. All right, and again, more information on PCOS, the environmental factors, and its influence on infertility uh, at the Creating a Family website. Now let's move and talk about primary ovarian insufficiency. Uh, we've already talked about uh, trisomy X or triple X, as well as fragile X, both being uh, chromosomal abnormalities that can lend the, that may cause infertility. Um, are there other uh, genetic links other than those two that we know of that might lead to a diagnosis of primary ovarian insufficiency? So yes, um, as Sharon uh, covered earlier when she was speaking, there are some genes that have been identified as causing only primary ovarian insufficiency without other findings. So um, as you mentioned, things like fragile X and sex chromosome abnormalities, they are both associated with primary ovarian insufficiency. But if a woman is a fragile X carrier or if there is a chromosome abnormality present, there are often other findings. It's not just the ovarian insufficiency. But there are some genes that we know if those genes are not working, really the only finding is that primary ovarian insufficiency. So those are sometimes called non-syndromic findings. It's not completely clear how often these genes are um, involved in pr primary ovarian insufficiency, uh, likely because while there may be testing for some of these single genes, it's still not really standard of care. It's not something that's mm -hmm. done routinely in a practice. If a woman comes in and she's diagnosed with primary ovarian insufficiency, often there will be a karyotype done. Often there will be fragile X testing done. There's often not testing done beyond that. And so without that testing, we really don't have the data to say, exactly what percent of women with, with primary ovarian insufficiency has one of these other causes. Yeah, that makes sense. This show, as well as all the resources we provide at Creating a Family, is brought to you by our partners. These are organizations that believe in our mission of unbiased, medically accurate information to the patient community. Another such partner is Reproductive Medicine Associates of New York. They are one of the largest fertility practices in the state and one of the largest in the country. By combining the latest innovations in reproductive science with compassionate and customized treatment plans, RMA of New York is able to provide the very best possible care. Okay, now we've talked about genetics and female infertility. We're going to move to be talking about genetics and male infertility. Sharon, I think a lot of people have heard of Klinefelder's syndrome. First of all, what is it and how common is it? How does it affect fertility in men? Uh, so Klinefelter syndrome is 47XXY. Uh, so these are males who have an extra X chromosome. It's actually quite common. It happens in about one in 500 to one in a thousand males. And fertility is one of the major, major features of Klinefelter syndrome. Is there other symptoms that people would see, would notice if they have it? There can be. It's actually often not recognized prior to adolescence or adulthood. And what may prompt 
kind of a workup for Kleinfelter is failure to progress through puberty or coming through for infertility and um, specifically azospermia or lack of sperm in the semen. Other features that we can see include tall stature. They can have something called gynecomastia, which is um, basically breast development. And they can also have fat deposits similar to what we see in females. There can be some learning issues as well. Again, not intellectual disability, but a specific learning profile um, that may need some uh, additional help in school. How common is it in men? It's about one in 500 to one in a thousand. Okay, interesting. All right. And so aspermia uh, is the most common sign that a man is infertile. How does Kleinfelter syndrome impact the sperm is what I'm trying to ask. Yep. So it's a what we call a non-obstructive azospermia. So there's not an obstruction um, or something blocking the path of the sperm. We're still not entirely sure how the azospermia occurs. What we've seen is that in early adolescence, the sperm count may actually be normal, but then it drops off very rapidly. And so by the time a young man with Kleinfelter reaches adulthood, they may have very few or no sperm in their semen. Okay. And so then that would be, and then, so is there, is it possible to use ICSI? Is there any, is it possible to reproduce? It is possible. Um, it often requires, you know, preparation and some intensive assisted reproductive technology. Um, one thing, if the diagnosis is known and, you know, it's being discussed with a young man is that you can do what's called cryopreservation of sperm, basically getting a sperm sample in adolescence when we know the sperm count can be higher and freezing that sperm for future use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you know it early, yeah. Mm-hmm. If you know it early, Exactly. The other big thing that's being used for men with Kleinfelter is a testicular sperm extraction, Mm -hmm. um, where they're going and getting the sperm directly from the testicles rather than through uh, semen. Mm -hmm. So even though a a, a person with Kleinfelters might well have asospermia, they are still able to do the sperm extraction from the gonads and would have the ability then to reproduce? Is that correct? Correct. Correct. Interesting. Okay. Excellent. And then let's let's talk about the possibility of passing this chromosomal abnormality on. So there is a higher risk for having children with X or Y chromosome abnormalities. That risk hasn't been quantified very well. Um, we just know that the risk is there. Okay. So it's something to be aware of going forward if a man has Kleinfelter syndrome. Correct. Okay, excellent. So we've talked about where we would have an extra with a man having an extra X. What about if a man has, is it possible for a man to have an extra Y chromosome? So it would be XYY. Yes, it is. And and that is basically what the syndrome is called. It's called XYY syndrome. And it's an extra Y chromosome, as you mentioned. Okay, so how common is that? 
XYY is also relatively common. It's it's about one in a thousand men as well, um, maybe a little bit rarer. Okay, but but of similar. What are the symptoms? So actually, a, a lot of times, just like with Kleinfelter and some of the other sex chromosome abnormalities, men with XYY syndrome may be missed because there aren't really a lot of of issues that we see. The biggest things are again with regards to the learning profile, where there may be ADHD and some learning disabilities. But in general, it's it, it can definitely be missed. Um, both Kleinfelter and XYY are something that could be picked up prenatally if prenatal testing like a CVS or an amniocentesis is done, but also could be completely missed unless something triggers them to come to clinic or come to a genetics clinic uh, for testing. Yeah. Is this for pre-implantation genetic testing? Uh, this could also be picked up, but again, is it is it normally looked for? Correct. It can be picked up by pre-implantation genetic testing. And when you do PGTA, which is looking at the chromosomes via uh, the pre-implantation genetic testing, it it will be picked up and reported as long as sex is being reported. Okay. And what are the symptoms of, uh, that would impact fertility? Is asospermia, the, uh, again, the symptom as it is with Kleinfelder syndrome, or is it just reduced sperm mortality or quantity? So actually, 47XYY rarely causes fertility issues. It's, it's a little unusual in the sex chromosome abnormalities for that regard. And so most of the time, this is not a discussion we would necessarily be having with a young man or um, an adult with XYY syndrome. Um, certainly, they come through, but it, it, it's not thought to be really a cause of the syndrome itself. Interesting. So that you probably would not even necessarily know about it other than the fact that you're in infertility treatment for some other reason and you're doing genetic testing then. Correct. Okay. Well, I guess that's a, that's good news for someone who is at this point. Yeah. (laughs) Finally, we have some good news for you there. All right. Now let's talk about structural chromosomal abnormalities, which would include things like deletions, duplications, translocations, and things such as that. Sheila, what are they, structural chromosomal abnormalities, and and how would they impact something like fertility? So a structural chromosome abnormality is really any chromosome finding um, that results in some sort of either imbalance, depending on what the finding is, or the person who has the structural chromosome abnormality may themselves have a balanced set of chromosome material, but because of the the rearrangement, they themselves have an increased chance of having a baby with with an unbalanced form. So you're talking balanced and unbalanced. What do you mean by that? So great question. So a balanced chromosome rearrangement um, would include things like a balanced reciprocal translocation or a balanced Robertsonian translocation or a balanced inversion. That means there's a rearrangement in the way the genetic material is present in that person. But even though it's it's in a different order, um, all of the information is there. And so there's nothing missing or extra to result in any sort of significant findings for that person. So 
unless they were having fertility concerns or unless there was a suspicious family history, which often there is not, a person with a balanced chromosome rearrangement is not going to know they have it. Okay. So would it be like this? If the normal arrangement was A, B, C, D, they, somebody with a balanced rearrangement would be something like A, D, C, B. And, and so that it would be about the same, the, the quantity of material and the actual material would be there. It's just in a different order. Is, am I understanding it correctly? Yeah, that's, that's a great analogy. Okay. So that's balanced. And, and it sounds like that would have less impact because the material of there is there. It's just not in the right order. Is, am I, is that correct? Well, it has less impact on the person who carries the rearrangement but it's actually very impactful for reproduction because if somebody has a balanced chromosome rearrangement, when they are making their gametes, so when they're making egg or sperm, their chromosome pairs have to divide. And if their chromosome material is in a different order, while that doesn't impact them, it really impacts the way those chromosomes pull apart to make a mature egg or a mature sperm cell. And so the result is often either an egg cell that has too much or not enough chromosome material or a sperm cell that has too much or not enough chromosome material. And if that egg or sperm is used in a conception, then you have an embryo and potentially a pregnancy that is affected with an unbalanced rearrangement. So having not enough or too much genetic material. And that is very impactful. It can either result in pregnancy loss or in some cases, the birth of a baby with um, special needs because of the imbalance in chromosome information. And so to go back to my simplistic analogy, imbalance would be the normal one being A, B, C, D. Imbalance would be A, B, C, or A, B, C, D, E, or A, B, C, D, D, or something. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So that would be an imbalance. And an imbalanced arrangement has more direct impact uh, or has a direct impact on the person who is carrying it, uh, which means the child that would be conceived or the human, the, the, the person who's coming in. Correct. If it's unbalanced, those effects are going to be for the person who has the unbalanced form. Because mm-hmm. they're missing something. There is some, uh, a necessary chromosome. There's something part of the DNA that is not, that is missing. Correct. So what is a Robertsonian, a structural chromosomal abnormality? Yeah, so a Robertsonian translocation um, refers to a very specific set of chromosomes. So there are five chromosomes that are what we call acrocentric, which just means that the top part doesn't really contain any genetic information. It's really all contained in the bottom part. Those are chromosomes 13, 14, 15, 20, and 21. And so those are the only five chromosomes that can be involved in a Robertsonian translocation. And in a Robertsonian translocation, what happens is two of those acrocentric chromosomes join end to end and they form one long chromosome. So the most common chromosome translocation that we see in the general population actually happens to be a Robertsonian translocation, and it's what we call a 13-14 translocation. And in someone who has that, they have one copy of chromosome 13 that is free and not attached to anything, one copy of chromosome 14 that is free and not attached to anything, 
And then they have a second copy of 13 and a second copy of 14 that have joined end to end and they have formed one long chromosome. So those individuals actually have 45 chromosomes instead of 46, but they're not missing any information both the information from 13 and 14 is present, but they've joined and now they're one long chromosome. Do they have any impact from that? For themselves? No. But again, um, when it comes to reproduction, that impact is very significant because that long chromosome where the two 13 and 14 have joined end to end, that's not going to divide very well when egg and sperm is being made. And so you can end up with an egg that either has too many number 13 chromosomes or not enough 13 chromosomes. And same thing with 14. You can have an egg or a sperm that has too many or not enough. And if those are used in a conception, you're going to have, you're going to have a pregnancy that either has an extra or a missing chromosome. And again, that's either going to result in no, no pregnancy, like no implantation. It can result in an early miscarriage, or in some cases, it can result in a baby that has a pretty significant um, genetic disorder as the result of an extra chromosome. Can these structural chromosomal abnormalities, including the Robertsonian, happen with both male and female? Yes, that's actually a really important point. Um, it's very often that women are having their chromosomes tested. One of the and one of the reasons that we see a preponderance of women having this testing is because a common finding in couples that have a translocation um, or an inversion is miscarriage, and often you know, when we think about an evaluation for recurrent pregnancy loss, it's often the woman that is having that testing. But in reality, her male partner can also carry a translocation. Mm -hmm. And so testing really needs to be done for both of them. It's called a karyotype or a chromosome analysis. And even if you test the woman first and you find she has a translocation, that does not mean that you don't need to test the male partner because there are couples where both members of the couple have a translocation. And that's really important, um, particularly for couples who might be undergoing IVF, because that really impacts their chance of having an embryo with a normal set of chromosomes, which is the, what's going to give them the best chance of success. So it's mm -hmm. really important to always test both. And the reason we're talking about if they go by SCAs, but structural chromosomal abnormalities under genetics, the section here in genetics and male infertility is because so often it's not thought of uh, because we test the women for this, but we don't test their their male partner. That And that's an important thing that we absolutely must do, particularly when somebody is seeking infertility treatment. So now let's talk about We've talked about single gene disorders for females. Let's now talk about single gene disorders that might affect male infertility. Sheila, are there any? There are. Dawn, if I could back up to the structural rearrangements, I had just had one sure. last point, if you don't mind. No, uh, because absolutely. This, because this is under the male infertility section. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to make sure to mention a chromosome abnormality that does really only impact men. And those are the Y chromosome microdeletions. So there are areas on the Y chromosome that are important for the development of healthy sperm. And if there is a deletion in any of those regions, there are three main ones. If there is a deletion in any of those regions, 
that is going to impact sperm production. And depending on where the deletion occurs, it can result in azospermia. Um, sometimes it can result in oligospermia. It can also result in problems um, with sperm formation, which is sometimes called teratospermia, can cause issues with motility. And because that happens on the Y chromosome, that is something that is very unique to men because, you know, genetic females do not have a Y chromosome. Mm -hmm. So when you have a male who has an abnormal semen analysis, it's really important to always think about doing those Y micro deletion studies because it may give you your answer. Okay. Now let's get back to the single gene disorders. Sheila, uh, are there uh, single gene disorders that affect male fertility? There are. Um, and the most common one that, that is uh, seen is cystic fibrosis. And cystic fibrosis, for those who may know that term or are familiar with that condition, a lot of people think about cystic fibrosis um, in a way that we often call classic cystic fibrosis, where um, people who have cystic fibrosis have very significant lung involvement. They get very thick, sticky mucus built up in their lungs, which causes a lot of respiratory problems. And classic cystic fibrosis truly is um, a multi-system disorder with mm -hmm. lung involvement being the most common. There's also involvement of the pancreas and the digestive system, but it also does impact fertility. And for males in particular who have cystic fibrosis, they have something called congenital absence of the vas deferens. And so this is actually, the vas deferens are the tubes that help to transport sperm out of the body. So these men make sperm, but this is an obstruction. So this, re this results in an obstructive azospermia. The sperm can't get out. And what we are learning with the continuing evolution of genetic testing is that the cystic fibrosis gene, that gene is called CFTR, it doesn't just cause that classic disorder where there's lung involvement and pancreatic involvement and infertility. You can actually have what's called a CFTR spectrum disorder or a CFTR-related disorder and have only the findings of male infertility. So there are some men who are otherwise healthy, but when they try to have a family, that's not working for them. They go for an evaluation, they have an abnormal semen analysis, and then additional testing identifies either one or two genetic changes in that CFTR gene. Uh, and that's important for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that depending on what those findings are, that man could potentially have a child who has classic cystic fibrosis. He could also potentially have a male child who also has absence of the vas deferens. Um, that would depend both on his genetic findings and the status of his partner, but that's a really important discussion to have. Yeah, that's fascinating. The, the the whole thing around genetics and its influence on our health is absolutely fascinating. And it's it, what is part of it so fascinating is it's so new. I mean, we're we're learning all the time, literally every year that goes by, we know we know more. But before we get off of, of cystic fibrosis, it, so as I'm under it's the absence of the vas deferum that is the the primary cause. They're producing fine. The, the sperm, it's not the production of the sperm, it's getting the sperm into the semen. Does CF have any impact on the, the if, if the vas deferens is there and the, there is no obstruction, 
is there any impact on fertility at that point? So absence of the vas deferens is one of the most common features of cystic fibrosis. So the presence of vas deferens is pretty rare, but if a man with cystic fibrosis or a CFTR spectrum disorder has vas deferens, then there's not the then there's not really an increased risk for infertility because this okay. this the sperm production tends to be normal. Mm -hmm. And for men who do have the absence of vas deferens, um, the testicular extraction is something that can be Mm -hmm. utilized for them. Um, So sperm can be extracted directly from the testicles to use in something like IVF. Got it. Okay. Excellent. All right. So I, I, some ways have, have already answered this question, but my, my last question to you, and I'm going to direct starting with Sharon, why has it been so hard to pinpoint the exact genes associated with male and female infertility. I mean, partly I answered it myself by saying that you know, it's such a new field in many ways and we're learning constantly. But it, are there other things that come? Why is it so hard to, to know? It, it would be so much better if we could just say, all right, we could do a genetic test and then we would, it'd be great. We could do it when we're you know 15 and then we would know, oh gosh, you know, I'm going to, I'm at risk for uh, losing my fertility early, therefore uh, I need to start early, or I'm at risk for struggling, therefore I uh, with fertility, so I need to go ahead and start earlier, and maybe I'll do that first before I go to grad school, that type of thing. But that doesn't exist, does it? Not really. <laughs> Darn. Yeah. <laughs> for for a number of of reasons, you know, it's in genetics we're very you know, we try to focus also on the ethical implications of genetics and genetic testing. And that includes autonomy. And so if you think about your typical teenager, they don't, they don't want to know. They don't care. It's not necessarily on the horizon for them. So they're not thinking about it. And, you know, when it's for future risk or or future health implications, reproductive implications, they really need to have a say in whether they want to have the testing or not. So that's one of the reasons why we don't really just have that baseline population testing for, for adolescents. In terms of, of finding new genes, finding new genes is hard. It really is. It, it takes large populations. It takes really comprehensive testing. And it also takes a really good understanding of the genome or, or all of our DNA, which we simply don't have. We know a lot about a few number of genes. We know a little about everything. And that can make it really hard to be able to narrow down and say, oh, this section of DNA or this gene is contributing to X, Y, or Z presentation. It's, it's, we think we know more than we actually do. It's almost like it's, a, we're living in a very tantalizing time because there's so much knowledge coming and it's coming so quickly that we think we know more about genetics than we actually do, which, um, which is frustrating. <laughs> uh, Sheila, I will give you the last word. Anything you'd like to add about uh, the progress of, of genetic testing and, and how we're moving and its impact on fertility? I think Sharon summarized it very well. Um, and as as did you, Don, I think you know it's really important to understand that while we're learning new things every day, 
the more we learn, the more questions we have. And it's tempting to think that we're going to have this sorted out. I hear people say all the time, oh, in five years, you'll have it figured out. Or, oh, in 10 years, you'll have it figured out. And I, I completely agree that in five years or 10 years, we'll know more. We're not going to have it figured out. Um, <laughs> so I, I yeah. think that it's really, I think that that's a really important expectation to keep in mind. And I would say if we were going to end on any note, I think it's really important for fertility providers and for patients alike to just make sure that there's a complete review of family history to talk about the genetic testing that is available. Because while we don't have a genetic test for everything, we do have genetic testing for some things and providing information based on that genetic testing about a cause for infertility can be really helpful if one is identified both for providing some closure about this is happening, as well as to make sure that if there is some sort of risk to children, say for like cystic fibrosis or a chromosome abnormality, the couples are aware of that because in many cases, there's testing that can be offered um, to help them have um, the healthiest baby that they can. And so it's really important not to overlook the testing that we, that we already have. Excellent. Thank you so much, Sheila Johal and Sharon Lincoln, both genetic counselors at Cooper Genomics, for being with us today to talk about infertility and genetics. Let me remind everyone that the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. Also, this goes without saying, but keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice to understand how it applies to your specific situation. You need to work with your infertility professional. Most people learn about specific podcasts from friends. So if you're enjoying this podcast, please do us a favor and mention the Creating a Family podcast to someone. We're a nonprofit organization, and our mission is to educate and support folks with unbiased, medically accurate information. So you'll be helping with our mission by spreading the word. Thanks for joining us, and I will see you next week.